Father, we are uh, thankful that you are a creative God. We're thankful that you have spoken to us, not only through uh, through the Bible, but through uh, so many other means, God, through each other, through um, things of beauty. And I pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us from your word. Make us receptive, and we look forward to uh, what you are going to share and uh, what you're going to teach through uh, the lesson today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Um, welcome. Like, let me before I start off. Um, how many of you guys consider yourselves the creative type? Uh, okay, like uh, a majority of you guys. So, who, um, like, who's more on the music side? You. Uh, who's more on the visual arts, like painting, classical art? Okay. Um, and then there is also um, like sculpture. I don't know if anyone does. There aren't that many people that do sculpture nowadays. But okay, sculpture. Um, how about <laughs> literature, poetry? Okay. Um, how about uh, any any anything else? So so there's there's a lot of different mediums of arts, and what I want to do this week and next week is talk about what is the theology behind beauty and creativity. I, I said last weekend during the announcements during the preview, there's no real function for art. There's no real function for beauty. Why does this stuff exist? So. What we're going to talk about is what what is biblically what is the purpose of beauty? Um, how does it work out? How does it enrich us as human beings? And how does it call us? How does it push us to be more of who God has created us to be? So, let me start off with a story, um, or actually a movie. So, before Christian Bale was Batman, he was a cleric in uh, a movie named Equilibrium, and this was a movie that came out in two thousand two. Have any of you seen that? You're nodding your head. You've seen it. So the premise of the movie is this. There's this is um, way in the future. This is kind of a dystopian movie. And Christian Bale is he's he's called a cleric. And what the cleric does is he enforces the rules of the state. And the state says that emotion and passion, these are the things that cause war. These are the things that cause conflict. So in order for everyone to to get along, in order for society to run the way that it should, these Everyone in the state takes something called prosium, and what prosium does is it inhibits emotions. It, it shuts down your emotions because emotions are bad, passions are bad. Christian Bale's role is to make sure that people stay in line, um, and there are there there are these like underground meetings where people sit around, and there's literally a scene in the movie where people it's these like rough looking guys. They're, they're they've been fighting, but they they go underground and they are listening to symphonies. And they're staring at works of arts um, because this is illegal because what do the arts do? They arouse emotions. They arouse passions. And that is bad according to the state. So um, Christian Bale, just through a series of things that happen, he realizes uh, one day he forgets to take the prosium and he, he sees a sunset through the window. Of course, because the state doesn't want the people to see, they don't want the people to see anything beautiful. Uh, they, they cover up the, the window. So the only purpose of the tr- window is to transmit light. So he sees light, and he, he starts pulling back the shade, and he sees a sunset, and there's something in him changes. Um, this is the start of his, his transformation. Uh, and then there's another scene where he finds one of these underground rooms, and he sees that there are works of art, there are paintings, there are pictures, there are sculptures, and he finds a record player, and he puts a record in there, and 
here's this hardened guy who for his whole life has been told that emotion is bad. He plays a record and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony comes on. And you can see this visual transformation. He he breaks down and he starts crying. And this is what art does is it makes it touches something in us. Very human. It touches something in us that that uh, you know we, we when when I say that there's no functional purpose for art, um, I am kind of not being totally accurate because art does something to us that other things can't. So, unlike um, Christian Bale in this movie Equilibrium, we can we have this whole world of beauty. If you look around, like why does a color yellow exist? Why is there a carpet of different colors and these there are squares that are perfectly symmetrical? Why why do things such things exist? So uh, what I want to do in the next few minutes is go through some of the theology of beauty. So the first is this um, wonder, what is God like? So let me start off with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. So the very first thing we see in the Bible is God being creative, is God taking nothing and creating something beautiful out of it. Now I have this quote from C.S. Lewis here, and he there's a... Um, there's a small book that... Any C.S. Lewis fans here? Uh, some of you guys? Yeah. Awesome. So actually what you'll see throughout this lesson and the next lesson is basically C.S. Lewis is shaping everything we're saying. So uh, that's that's what we're doing. But here's um, a letter that he wrote to his friend George MacDonald. George MacDonald was an author back in the um, early 20th century. This is one of the things he says. He says, Gratitude exclaims very properly, How good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Let me define this word coruscation because in case you don't know it, I didn't know this until I read it, but um, coruscation means bright intermittent flashes of light. So uh, if someone were to bring, um, like there, C.S. Lewis writes of fireflies, Fireflies coruscate because they glow. They there's there's a light quality to them. So C.S. Lewis in this passage, he's telling his friend, "I was in this woodshed and I noticed that it was all dark. But what I saw was the dust. Have you guys seen dust in a light beam? There's the dust. Uh, so what what he's saying is, I see the dust. But then he started thinking about not only do I see the dust, I see the dust because of the sun." And he starts thinking further, wait a minute, it's not just this light that exists. So he thinks back to 93 million years across the universe to the sun. And he goes, wow, I'm seeing this little tiny aspect of the sun. This He maybe saw like a four-foot beam of light. And he starts thinking, if, if this captures my attention, how big must the sun be? And he doesn't stop there, he says... If the sun can capture my attention, what about the guy that created all this? It says something about God, right, that the sun exists. It says something about God that this huge ball of gas can light up the entire planet. So this is one of the purposes of art, and we'll talk about this more later. But art, if you've ever felt something strongly, if you've ever um, looked at 
nature or art or listen to a piece of music that moved you, why does that move you? C.S. Lewis says it's because this is a little tiny eensy beensy eensy teensy bit of the beauty of God. So art exists, number one, to tell us that God is huge and beautiful. Um, a few, uh, like, I don't know if you guys have ever looked at um, art or beauty. Like, I, l- last week I mentioned um, there's, there's a certain portion of the rings of Saturn that are braided. And there's, there's no reason why the rings of Saturn should be braided. Do you guys know what the rings of Saturn are made up of? They're made up of rocks, huge rocks. And there's this one section back in the 80s, there with the, the, the satellite um, camera telescope thing, they, they took a picture of certain portions of Saturn. And they, they noticed that across these huge expanses of rocks, that there was another set of rocks that would braid around that main set of rocks. What is God like that he would create something like that? What is God like that he would create waterfalls and and anything beautiful that you can think of? So this is uh, what art should do, is it should awaken wonder. We don't focus mo- only on the thing in front of us, but we think further, what is God like that he would create something like this? Okay? Um, any questions or comments? I'm going to open it up to, um, to if you guys have any questions or comments, this is totally free. And uh, we have a lot of stuff today. Um, whatever we don't cover next week, or whatever we don't cover this week, we'll cover next week. So don't feel um, like you don't you can't interrupt. All right, so um, let's go to the theology. So I, I said earlier, um, all that God created. So Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. I said earlier that God created and what does God charge man to do? God tells man you can participate in the same thing that I have, which is creating. Or um, God created, uh, have you heard this phrase, ex nihilo? Meaning out of nothing, God created out of nothing. But for us, as image bearers of God, we also create. We don't create out of nothing. We create from the stuff that God has given us. So who was here at Pastor Michael's lesson on work? Um, Michael, Pastor Michael talked about man being charged with the dominion over the earth. And do you guys remember what he said about humans having dominion over the earth? What does that entail? What does that look like? You know, like, that we kind of give order to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we kind of are, like, someone tends a garden or builds a city that we sort of, we give some order to the world in a sense. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, part of our Imago Dei, Imago Dei, our image of the image of God in us, is putting order to to disorder. It's bringing something beautiful out of something that is not beautiful. So this this lesson actually kind of piggybacks off of Michael's Sunday school lesson on work. So uh, it's part of our very nature to create. So what this says is there's nothing, there's no humanity apart from our creative work. Uh, I have this. I have this quote from Dorothy Sayers. 
and she says this, look at man, uh, talking about looking at man, the author of Genesis sees in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what he says about the original upon which the image of God was modeled, we find only the single assertion, God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently that, the desire and the ability to make things. What this quote is saying is something like, it's hard for us to appreciate because it's we don't really catch this. But the only thing that Genesis 1 tells us about God is what? That he created. And when it says that we're created in the image of God, it's also saying that part of our humanity, and, and the very nature of human beings, is that we image the creativity of God. So the uh, the author of Genesis is being, being very, um, very uh, focused and being very, very deliberate with how he writes Genesis. Is he says... God creates, man is made in the image of God, therefore man should also create. So um, we are charged to have dominion over the world, and one of the ways we do this is through artistic endeavors. So what did God say about his creation? Do you guys remember what God said when he looked back and looked at all that he created? It was good, right. So the the world he created was not just it wasn't just purely functional it wasn't like a science lab where everything is sterile god created the world to be beautiful he says this is good so why does anything exist why does the color green exist because god said i'm creating something good and beautiful so what this says about man's uh man's um job is to man's part of man's being is to recreate beautiful things. Um, so I have this quote from Bruce Cockburn. He was a semi-popular back in the 70s and 80s, but he has this one great phrase in his song, Dangers in the, or Lovers in a Dangerous Time. He says, you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. This is what it means to have dominion over the earth. It's a kick at the darkness, kick at the dis- disorder, kick at the ugliness of the world. Until something beautiful comes out of it. We got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. So this is what it means when God charges his his beings to exercise dominion over creation. Okay, any questions, comments? All right, we go on. So let's talk about how God loves art. In the Old Testament, we see in the building of the temple, we see in how God prescribes how the priests um, should function in the temple we see that god doesn't just tell them this is what you need to do but he tells them when you're building the temple i want you to create things of beauty when you're creating the, when you're building the temple when you're putting together all that you need to have to approach god i want you to exercise creative and artistic freedom so i'm not going to read through all these passages just for the sake of time but we, um, in exodus 26 we see god telling his people this is how the temple should look it's not just a room with four walls and that's it no there are there's it's adorned with things of beauty um it's it there are pictures of or images of things in nature and also images of things that are not in nature Um, and if you want to look at the first calling of artists specifically uh these two guys ohaliab and bezalel they are charged to make things they are charged to use their artistic gifts 
in Solomon's temple, we see more, more, um, more details as to how a temple should be built. And if we look at it, there's all these details of how things should look because God values arts because beauty is a value of God. And then in Exodus 31, um, this is talking about the artist. God endows man with the skill to create. And the verse says this, I have given to all men ability that they may take all that I have commanded you. So God commands these artists to create. God commands these people to create beauty. Um, there's there's another, and you know, like, there's, um, have you guys heard the debate about the image, you shall not create a graven image? Um, this is one of the commands and um, some people, there's like in some like small circles of Christendom, this is just a side note in case you guys ever hear these conversations. People will say, oh, well, you shouldn't create images of things that don't exist in nature. Um, you should only, some people say you should only, like if you're painting, only paint things that are um, things that exist in the world. Or you shouldn't create an image of any representation of God. Um, that's a side note, but uh, you might hear these things. And I'll, I'll just say that we, in Exodus 28, God tells the artist to make blue pomegranates to adorn the priests, what they're wearing. Um, have you guys ever seen the blue pomegranates? Uh, blue pomegranate does not exist in nature. God says, let's make something that doesn't exist because um, that's pretty cool. I want you guys to create cool things. Um, the other argument that you, get, you guys may hear, um, you shouldn't create images of God and or images of Jesus and um, you know there are some people that will say I mean people that are very uh, theologically astute very orthodox people and they say all these paintings of Jesus you guys shouldn't create that sort of stuff so um, you guys can study up on your own Um, we're not going to go through that this week but you can come up with your own conclusions and I I, there are good reasons you should Um, there may be other reasons why you shouldn't but this is um I think as more minor issue that you guys can study on your own. So that's it. That's th- our point. That God loves arts. Dorothy. Um, do you have any thoughts? I know there's like a lot of religions um, or subsets of Christianity that create like beautiful houses of worship, but it's not really part of the Protestant Christian. Like you're talking. Know, about, you're, you're talking about like, like the temples cap- and like cathedrals and stuff. Yeah. Um, why do we not? Yeah, so I think, um, so the question is, uh, if you guys look at evangelical churches, you don't see, uh, for the most part, you don't see beautiful images, right? You see it's more functional. Um, I think it's because we just don't value art in general. Uh, if we look at, if you guys go to these Anglican churches or these ortho- or these Catholic churches, um, the, the people that created these buildings, they, they were thinking very biblically. I mean, they may, they may not be biblical about everything, but about art, maybe they, they realize that there is value. So if you look at the, um, the Catholic, the old Catholic buildings, what, what do they look like? They're tall because they want the people to enter to feel this sense of smallness because God is huge and man is tiny. Um, and then there's also images of the saints and uh, portrayals of Jesus on the stained glass and all this other stuff, um, and not just not just Christ, not just sects of Christianity, Christianity, but also if you guys have noticed mosques, other yeah, other religions. Um, if you guys have ever looked at a mosque uh, in in Islam, you're forbidden to paint anything representing Allah or uh, Muhammad. Um, 
this, so if you'll see, if you'll notice on all their buildings, they're just, it's beautiful Arabic script. So there is beauty to these mosques as well. But I think the reason why we don't see it in our day is because we just don't value art. For the first 1800 years of this, after Jesus died, um, the church was at the forefront of creating beautiful arts. And then, um, for some reason, um, we can go into church history to look at this, but then the emphasis on art became less and less and it's too uh it's it's unfortunate but you know back in the um back before the 1800s who created all these beautiful works of art it was christians um and even if they weren't explicitly christian works of arts if you look at the artists who created these sorts of things the music the 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 the, the, the buildings the um the artwork they are deeply christian people so i don't know if that answers your question but Yeah, we'll, we'll actually talk about that. Um, so is, is there an ultimate standard of beauty? So we'll talk about what good art is this week and next. So that's that's a good question. All right, let me move on to our next point, the story that we live in. So really quickly, God made the whole man, meaning that God made man with his emotions and passions and all the things that separate us from um, animals. Like we think, we interact with people in different ways. We have... An aesthetic, we have expectations of what beauty is. God made the whole man, but then the whole man was distorted by the fall. And we'll talk more about the fall in just a few minutes. But um, we, number two, in Christ, the whole man is redeemed. So God doesn't just save us and say, okay, you're going to go to heaven and that's it. No, the way that we think changes, our standard of what is good changes. So God, in Christ, the whole man is redeemed. Number three, Christ is the Lord of the whole man now and the Lord of the whole Christian life. So that means that not only is how you treat your family changed, not only is your thought life changed, but your how you value things such as beauty is changed as well because Jesus is the Lord of our aesthetic, our standard of beauty. Um, number four, in the future, as Christ comes back, the body will be raised from the dead and the whole man will have whole redemption. So in the new heavens and the new earth, we will all have good taste. And what I mean by that is this, that there are some people that like really crappy music. There are some people that like really terrible art. There are some people that like to eat food that is not good. Um, they think certain things are good. So, like I, I love Taco Bell, but people will tell me, you should not like Taco Bell because it's disgusting. Well, they might say, well, in the new heavens and new earth, you're going to think that Taco Bell is disgusting. Um, I will say, no, you're wrong. Taco Bell will be in the new heavens and new earth. But that, but what, I, what I'm saying is that in the future, we're all going to have good taste. Okay? Um, it's, that's still a little bit subjective, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But the implications of this story is this, that... There is creation and recreation in the story. What does God do to us? He says that in Christ we are what? New creations. And new creations have new everything. And we continue this pattern of creation and recreation by, by, pattern, by modeling what God has done for us. So what this means is this. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but Christianity is unique from other religions on so many other levels. But one of the levels is this, 
that only the Christian faith can give us the vocabulary for explaining why reality is the way it is. Why is there ugliness in the world? Why is there, um, why is there brokenness in the world? Why is there pain? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there such a thing as hope? Why does beauty exist? Other worldviews will say, well, I can answer maybe these questions. Others might say, well, I can answer these other questions. I can say, yeah, I can explain why pain exists. Or, or I can say why we can look forward to hope. But Christianity is a completely holistically integrated way of looking at the world. So we have the vocabulary. Christians have the vocabulary to say, yes, I understand why songs are in the minor key and I understand why songs are in the major key. I have the vocabulary to say, to explain why a, a painting can look so ugly and so beautiful and hopeful at the same time. Okay? Questions, comments? All right. The, the, uh, the dignity, the humanity of man is, is written into the story, but also brokenness in the fall. That's written into the story as well. But also hopefulness and resurrection and beauty. This is also written. So um, let me go on. Steal past those watchful dragons. Let me read for you this passage from Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So hold on to that phrase, suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What does that sound like? Man is creating art, right? They exchange the glory for God for images of things that are created rather than giving glory to the creator. So in this passage in Romans 1, this is so, there's, there's so much insight about the human condition in this passage. Part of the fault is that we all develop the ability to lie to ourselves. This is what this passage says. By our unrighteousness, Paul says, we suppress the truth. And what this means is that we develop schemes, we develop ways to block out what God is telling us. God is telling his people, I am God, you are not. You are accountable to me. But every human being has this strong, we're so skilled at lying to ourselves. We block out what God is saying to us. So this is futile thinking. This is the darkened hearts. Um, and I mentioned earlier, what, it's really interesting that art is mentioned, right? Um, these these people with darkened hearts, they create things to substitute for the glory of God. They're thinking, this is it. This is all we have. This is the, the, these birds, these animals, these people, my career, my, my whatever um, hobbies I have. This is all there is. And Paul says, you do that because you don't recognize that there's a God. You do that because you don't want to face the fact that you're accountable to this God. So C.S. Lewis, we, we say hi to him again. He says he recognizes this. And he talks, I, I'm going to read to you this passage from um, one of his books. But he says that uh, there are 
at least two sides to the human, right? There is the volitional side or our will or our logic, and there's the emotional side. Now, uh, for me as a, I'm more of a logical person. Christine is a very emotional person, so she rounds me out a lot, and I can appreciate this um, passage a a lot more now. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is this. He says that sometimes we think that emotion is the weaker thing, but actually logic there's a chance maybe for all of us that logic is the weaker of the two why because of romans one because if we do something stupid we can justify our actions right um and we can uh, if, if we do something dumb or if we see something that we want to be true we can make things up in our head to say yeah that that's that's good when in actuality it's bad it's evil and C.S. Lewis says this about, he's talking about fairy tales. Um, and this is, um, it's a long quote, but let me just kind of summarize it. He's saying that um, we, we, we've developed this capability to block out good and truth. Um, and sometimes logic isn't going to do it for us. So he says this, I wrote fairy tales because the fairy tale seemed the ideal form for the stuff I had to say. Then, of course, the man in me began to have his turn. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. So children, he says, sometimes they make so much more sense than the grown man because they haven't developed this ability to block out what is good and true. Let me continue. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An an obligation to feel can freeze feelings and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lower voices, almost as if it were something magical, medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and sunny school associations, one can make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. It's a lot of words. Let me summarize it. C.S. Lewis is saying there are things that need to be communicated. And sometimes the best way you can communicate it is to tell a story. Tell a story. Because... Like, have you guys ever, like, tried to convince someone of something? And you think, if I say it louder, then they're going to agree with me. Or if if you just, if you're angry enough with them, if they realize, I'm so upset at you, you have to agree with me. Does that change anyone's mind? Ever? It doesn't. C.S. Lewis is saying, wait a minute, there's another way of communicating truth that is good and beautiful and doesn't destroy this other person's humanity. I read this quote. I think Pastor Michael posted it on his Facebook. It was something along the lines of, the best teachers are those that can teach without shame, meaning that if you if you can learn something without feeling shame, that's when it gets to you. I read, I read another quote recently um, by, by, name guy, by a guy named Bob Goff, and he says, um, we grow where we are loved. We grow where we are loved. When we don't feel the voices of condemnation or anger coming at you, that's when things really get to us. So he says this about not just literature, but of all types of arts. Here's something beautiful. Here's something beautiful. 
like the Trojan horse, if you guys know in mythology, um, the Trojan horse, there's people in there and you get in. Um, C.S. Lewis says, your emotion, um, your, or your, your logic, your reasoning, these are these watchful dragons. These are the dragons that stand guard over your heart and over your mind. And they say, when I want to hear something I don't want to hear, um, the dragons are going to, going to, um, chew them up and destroy them. But he says, you put it in, st- in the form of story, you put it in the form of art, then these can sneak past the dragons. So this, there's an artist by the name of Maku Fujimura. He's, um, uh, there's a ton of stuff uh, about him on YouTube and, and, uh, and if you just Google him, but he says this, the arts are a cup that will carry the water of life to the thirsty. It's not water itself, it's the vessel. What we are doing in the church today is we are just picking up water with our bare hands and trying to carry it to the thirsty. We can still do it, but the effect is minimized by not fully utilizing what God has given us. We have to do what we can carry the full, we have to do what we can to carry the full cup rather than be satisfied with the waters that slip through our fingers. So, he's saying, tell a story. Create a piece of art. Do something beautiful that can communicate something. And we have an example of this in the Bible, right? Do you remember David? He committed all these terrible things. And the prophet Nathan, what does Nathan do? He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't point a finger of condemnation. If he wants to change David's heart, what does he do? Look at this. Then the Lord sent David to Nathan. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. He's telling him a story. And this is what cuts into David. This is what art does. If you let it sneak past those watchful dragons in your life. So feeling the truth is better than knowing the truth. And I say this as someone, it's difficult for me to say this um, because I'm more logical. Um, but feeling the truth, that's going to change you, not merely knowing the truth. It's important to know the truth but you got to feel it in your bones as well um let me look at the time all right any questions comments all right i'm gonna kind of uh go through these next couple points quickly because i want to play something for you and then we'll cover the rest next week but our next point beauty points to redemption Beauty points of redemption. So, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read Genesis 9. But the Noahic covenant, this is one of the major covenants in the Bible. And God destroys the world through the flood. And then he creates... I'm sorry, do you guys not have it? Oh, no, did you skip a part? What is he next? Oh, I. you know what? I must have it differently. Okay, let me let me go through... Let me just go to um, uh, what you guys have in order. And then I will... Go to uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I have like two two. My my things are set up differently. Um, okay, let's let's go to art reflects beauty, reality as it is, and also as it will be. So Isaiah 63, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isaiah is talking about who in this passage? He's talking about Jesus, right? Because Jesus says when he starts his ministry, the Lord has the Spirit of the God, of God is upon me. He has anointed me to pr- bring good news to the poor. And then look down uh, at the bottom. To comfort all who mourn, to bring to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You hear this phrase? Have you ever heard the phrase, um, God makes beauty out of ashes, 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 or he brings beauty out of ashes? The ministry of Christ 
is to take the ugliness and the brokenness and the ashes of our life and turn it into something beautiful. So art reflects reality. Art can say, yes, I see that there are ashes, but I also see that there is going to come beauty from it. So like we said earlier, um, what is man charged to do? He's charged to, ha- to, to have dominion over the earth, which includes bringing order out of disorder. Um, dis- I have, and I have a few, um, comparisons, despair versus hope, absurdity and meaninglessness versus purpose and significance. So if you guys have ever studied art history, have, just curiosity, have you guys studied art history before? Um, there was a movement, um, decades ago, um, actually just, at, at, Postmodern, like if you if you guys look at philosophy, um, back in the 17 and 1800s, there was a strong push to say, "Hey, you know what? I'm not sure if there is a god. I don't know if there's absolute truth. I don't know if there's such a thing as beauty." And people created art that was not. It was despairing. Uh, I watched this movie years ago. It's called Happiness, and um, it was like seriously one of the most terrible movies I've ever ever watched because there was so much despair in the movie. And no, no pointer toward hope or redemption. Real good art says this, that there, yes, there is something terrible in the world, but God can make things beautiful. So good art, it doesn't necessarily have to be Christian art, but good art says that there is hopefulness. Good art says that there is purpose and significance to human life. There is order versus nonsense. Okay. Um, now, um, I want to. Sh- I want us to look at um, a painting. This is <coughs> Vincent Van Gogh's Sorry Night. So I don't have a printout. So what I'm going to ask you to do is pull out your phones. Um, pull out your phones, and then you're going to uh, Google Starry Night. And uh, if you guys don't, aren't, maybe you can just look on someone. But Google Starry Night. And as you're looking it up, let me tell you about Vincent van Gogh. Vincent van Gogh is known as, he has a reputation for being kind of very morose and melancholy. And they say that he killed himself because he went insane. Um, But this is, uh, from what we know now from the latest scholarship, Vincent van Gogh was actually, he he may have been killed instead of committing suicide. He did did have his periods of darkness. But for a long time, he was a very committed Christian. He actually wanted to be a missionary. He was a preacher, and a lot of people, um, he preached to minors, and these minors, they say he wasn't a great preacher, but he loved Jesus, and he taught us the word. Uh, some people didn't like certain things that he did. They didn't like his what, the way of doing ministry, so they, they cut off funding to him, and he became an art. He, he focused on art, and Vincent van Gogh created one of the most famous pieces of paintings in the world. But he only was he only worked at this for three years, and what you see in front of you, if you're looking at the picture, Starry Night, this he said that he he actually thought about throwing this away because he didn't think that there he he could sell it, he could make any money off of it. But look at it now. Um, if you look at it, if you look in the very center, what's there? There is an old Dutch Reformed church that did not exist in the scene that he was looking at as he was painting. What he was modeling his his painting after. This little church did not exist. Okay? This church h- holds everything together because it's in the center of the painting. Without, the, And if you guys have studied um, uh, aesthetics and, and painting, you need something to, to hold everything together. This, church, this picture would fall apart without the church in the center. 
Now note, the church is the only building in this painting that has no lights on. If you look at everything else, if you look at the, the houses around, they all have lights. The church also, what does it do? Like all good churches should, they point, it points up. There's a vertical um, quality to this church. Now look at the stars and look at how they're swirling around and look how much brighter they are than everything else in the, in the painting. And then look at the upper right-hand corner. Is that a moon or a sun? It's both, right? Or you could say it's neither. And what Vincent van Gogh is saying is this. That the light has gone out from the church. But there is so much glory and beauty outside. And the purpose of the believer is to take what is true and real and also what will be true and real. This is what he signifies by the moon slash sun. He says, there is a world to come in which there will be unending beauty. And Vincent van Gogh says this. This is after he was disassociated from the church. He says, the glory of God still exists. And we are going to see it. And he says, I have this quote right here, when I have a terrible need of, shall I say the word religion? Then I go out and paint the stars. So art reflects reality as it is and also as it will be. And I have this quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. None of the children knew who Aslan was. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as if something enorm- it, it had some enormous meaning. So beautiful that you remember it for all your life. Have you ever seen a piece of art that captivated you? Have you ever heard a piece of music that just made you think, there has to be a God? I, I've, I've heard about um, the existence of music as proof of the existence of God. Because how can something, how can notes, how, how, can, how can this, why does this exist? There's no reason why it should exist. And we hear about these things. We see pieces of art that say, you know what? If this has meaning to you, Maybe what you feel is because God is a good God, because God is a beautiful God. Um, let me make sure. What time do you guys have? Okay. I'm going to. Um, I, I have some things that I wanted to show you guys, but we'll look at it next week. Um, but let me just for the sake of time, let me uh, next week we'll talk about how beauty points to redemption. Um, why? Uh, art exists and what it means to be a Christian artist. We'll talk about what good art is. Let me let me read for you this passage from T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot was also a believer. He was a very messed up believer. That uh, Some people will say he was a terrible person, but he created beauty. Um, and we'll close off with this and um, we'll pray. But this he wrote a series of poems and he published it in 1943. Um, and this is what he says. The dove is referring to, yes, Holy Spirit, and he refers to Greek mythology in this passage as well. The dove descending breaks the air with flames of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame. Mm -hmm. 
which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Now, what does this passage, what does this poem say? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, because there's so much depth to this poem. Um, and this is how it should be for arts. Remember I said that the Christian has a vocabulary to create something ugly and beautiful and point to something that is greater than ourselves. So you can look at this. Um, I'm like I really wanted to play the song for you, Show the Way, because I think that even though this is a more contemporary song, maybe next week I'll play it for you, but um, this guy, he wrote this song that, in, in light of the Paris terror attacks, I thought, oh, this would be great if I could play it for the Sunday school class. Um, you, can, you can look at it, and maybe next week you guys can we can listen to it together. But um, this is part one. I hope that you guys can join for next week. If you guys have any questions, talk to me offline. But let me pray for us, and then we'll go to worship God together. God, we're so thankful for beauty. We're thankful that you have spoken to us in so many ways. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to what true beauty is. And all these tendencies we have to shut out the truth, to shut out beauty. I pray that you would soften those, that you would break down the walls that that keep us from knowing you and enjoying you fully, God. So as we head off and, and worship with our family, would you be glorified, God? And we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.